0: Hi, I'm Rajor Shidash, and you're listening to Queerness and Storytelling in India. So today I have with me Anita E. Cherian who has a PhD in Performance Studies from Tisch School of the Arts, New York University. Her research interests are in the areas of cultural policy and cultural studies, cultural labor, literary history, theater history, dance and performance studies. Her publications have appeared in journals such as Performance Research, Third Frame, Sangeet Natak, Interventions, and the International Journal of Folklore Studies. She's a volume editor of Tilt, Pause, Shift, Dance Ecologies in India, a collection of essays on dance in India brought by the Gati Dance Forum and published by Tulika Books in 2016. A recent essay for the Serendipity Arts Festival considers questions of curation and repertoire in the performances of Nartaki Nataraj and Sri Kala Krishna. Welcome, Anita. Thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. Yeah, thanks, Rajasri. I will just start with your most recent sort of article that you mentioned in the uh, in the bio note. Now, this article on uh, Nataki Nataraja and Sri Kalakrishan focuses on the limits of subversion in the classical uh, form. And given the histories of caste and gender-based erasures, also on uh, norms, I felt like the article does such a great job of kind of tracing the trajectory of these histories, what has changed and how they have changed, especially... Uh, in terms of bodily gestures, but also in terms of like the, I don't know if the gharana is the right word, but how they are traveling from one um, caste community maybe to another. Uh, I wanted to know what has been, have you, I don't know who is the audience here, like not the audience of your article, I mean the audience of the performance. This was of course the art festival. So I'm assuming that they were, you know, someone who's used to seeing classical uh, dance. So how has the audience reacted to these changes uh, uh, generally? Are these audiences different when you think of classical dance? Does it depend on the form? And how are they reacting to these uh, changes?
1: Firstly, thanks, Rattuji. Okay, so the first caveat is essentially something that I tell people that, uh, you know, I'm one of those somewhat uh, rare specimens in that I'm not a dancer, but I'm interested in dance, Uh, which I think is not a problem, but I think perhaps within the dance community or within the community of scholars who work on dance, uh, most people who study dance tend to be from within the tradition. So I'm not from within the tradition. I'm also not from uh, the kind of cultural background that produces these traditions, which is to say that I'm not uh, from either a kind of upper caste uh, community that has actually, that now more or less owns these forms. Nor am I from like uh, the communities that were the stewards of this form earlier. I'm in fact uh, you know, like (laughs) a, a Christian, very middle class woman who was interested in cultural, cultural, cultural work, and uh, my interest in theatre and in policy led me to an interest in dance, and essentially trying to think about or trying to understand how a concept of of the classical begins to emerge. And in my kind of study of like the documents of the of the state and various other cultural bodies what i found is that the classical is pretty much an invented category and it it is an invented category that uh, that gains or garners the weight of the state and it requires a kind of extraordinary legitimacy i'm actually writing something about it with great difficulty uh, right now but um, uh, but what i want to say is that For, I mean, beginning sometime in the early part of the 20th century, uh, continuing right early part of the first couple of decades of the 20th century, first few decades of the 20th century and into, uh, you know, into the period of independence and after, there is a way in which dance forms uh, come to be reinscribed into the nation or the nation is inscribed onto them. So it could be a form like sadir or uh, or kuchipudi or 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 kathak or or whatever these forms that somehow come to be then identified as classical, and um, and there is a way in which these forms which might have existed literally on like the peripheries of the of the South Asian of, of the subcontinent come to be rewritten as classical. And there are these narratives that are built around this classicism, narratives of uh, of sanctity, uh, narratives of like bhakti, uh, narratives of a kind of ineffable beauty. But there is also simultaneously a, a, a narrative that is a narrative of decline, of degeneration and the need to actually restore these forms. So, in almost every instance, if you look at the communities who have so supposedly restored or revived these forms, uh, they, are, they are communities of like these are elite communities. And what is also interesting is a way in which uh a form such as Kushipuri or even Hathriya, the Assamese form, these were Hatriya is a form that was performed by like male monks, male, male Vaishnav monks. And Kuchipudi, which is a form performed by Telugu Brahmin men, or even if you were to look at what we know today as Ory- Odissi, uh, these are forms that were originally performed by men or boys, and these come to then be feminized. Now, when you are talking about audiences, I think what is interesting—I don't know if it's interesting—but what is I mean, there is a way in which this process of transformation, this process of appropriation is so entrenched now that for most people, I don't know if they see a problem. In the Bharatanatyam community, uh, thanks to the, I mean, thanks to certain kinds of scholarly interventions. For instance, the intervention of somebody like Amrit Srinivasan in the ni- Srinivasan in the early nineties, or Srividya Natarajan, who's a practitioner in the mid nineteen nineties, or Dabesh Soneji um, in the middle of twenty twelve, or Ritya's own articulations more recently. Uh, and Ritya is is interesting because she is a woman from from the kind of hereditary community who has stepped out, owned her identity, spoken of her lineage, and actually problematized dance in a certain way. The performance of dance, the the, the kind of enjoyment of dance, the, the curation of dance, she's, she's absolutely and utterly problematized it. But I think what has happened is that Within this kind of elite community, we have arrived at a certain kind of, not, I don't know if I should say we, but maybe I'm just going to go ahead and say we. There is a certain kind of an impasse. And uh, a certain kind of an impasse where you have, you have community, where you have practitioners, elite practitioners who have invested a huge amount of time and money and energy into learning the form. And who are absolutely, and I suppose rightly so, resistant to not dancing. Uh, so there is this imperative, so there is this kind of impasse here about what is the kind of ethical next step. So for a lot of people, uh, I think even to acknowledge appropriation is difficult because then the question is what happens once you have acknowledged appropriation. What is your what is your what 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 are you required to do for instance, you know I'm always thinking about the situation that is happening with regard to to the restitution of material artifacts that is like that is that is a huge wave of uh, waves that is i mean a restitution of material artifacts of like colonized communities from like museums in in the first world and this kind of sending them back, sending them back to the to the to the countries that they keep from. And uh, so there is a way in which the restitution of the material object probably has within it some kind of a fairly, I think, some kind of a sense of like, you know, we have got something back. But how? What is the form of restitution that that is available to an intangible practice? Uh, so I think there is a very difficult situation that uh, that the community is in. You know, so it's it's different. I don't think it's just. Mm. Let me just speak about the uh, the audience that was there at Serendipity in Goa. Now serendipity is a festival that's been going on, I think for five, six years. Perhaps I don't know. I went in twenty nineteen December, and I think maybe, maybe it was it was it had been on then for maybe two or three or maybe four years. I don't know twenty twenty one was the kind of Covid year. So this year again they are they are having it. Uh, so it's in Goa. it's a way in which uh, the space of Goa largely Pujim is being reanimated. Through through culture, so uh, the whole geography of the space is kind of inhabited by different kinds of cultural practices, and um, and this particular performance happened in like this very very tiny space. It was jam packed. It was also very sweaty, very difficult to see it. I don't think it was an ideal space for dance, but. Um, you know, festival audiences, at least in India, uh, at least in most parts of India, tend to be, tend to belong to a, to a particular kind of class caste background. Uh, I remember going to the Kochi Biennale a few years ago, and what's interesting about the Kochi Biennale is that, uh, again, its transformation of that space, uh, means that all kinds of people come to it, all kinds of locals come to it, I'm not sure, um, whether that kind of of openness is available to people uh, or or if that kind of local participation is there vis-a-vis, go and locals. There might be. A lot of the community that I saw over there were people who were coming for the festival from outside. So again, like people who are deeply embedded in the the world of the arts. uh, In in places like in Delhi or in Chennai, where you have the kind of annual music season, which starts in November, December, um, it is largely upper-caste, the audience. Uh, It's largely upper-caste and all the visible markers of upper-castness are are there. I mean, the way you dress, uh, the way you look, uh, and it is a fairly educated audience and and they are looking at at work that um, that they are familiar that they are in a way rasikas of. Um, so that is that is one very significant part of the audience. The other part of the audience that is quite significant, of course, obviously very significant, is the is the audience of academics. Now, a few years ago, I remember like uh, very eminent um, journalist who works. On, on dance and music telling me that uh, uh, all the writing that is happening on, on dance in India or subcontinental dance or South Asian dances is, is happening from scholars who are seated either in the US or in or in the UK or so in the West. And uh, he was basically raising the question to think about like, why is there not enough scholarship happening here? But you know, when you think about that and you actually think about who these scholars are, again, what you're seeing is that this is uh, a fairly elite community, uh, diasporic. Uh, and and of course, there is, again, this big problem, how do we deal with the question of appropriation? Uh, yesterday, I was speaking to to a kind of student who is beginning work on dance. And she was telling me about the work of Shaisla Patel, who I've just looked up and her work sounds really interesting. Uh, A Dalit scholar, probably Pakistani, uh, who is talking about forms of settler colonialism that that Indians practice when they come to the US. And all of it then kind of also gets, um, so there is a way in which, At a certain level, you're claiming a radical politics, but uh, the questions of appropriation, uh, the questions of a kind of historic debt, it's very difficult to address them, to answer them. I don't know if that answers your question.
0: No, it does, um, because then the audience is also kind of fragmented, depending on the the location. Depending on
1: where it is, depending on where it is, if you go to Delhi Kamani Auditorium for like when the art season begins in the winter, you will have a particular audience or any of the kind of big Delhi auditoriums. It's a similar thing in, it's a similar thing in Chennai. I'm sure it is fairly similar in Bombay also. And uh, there is no doubt that by class if not by caste, I belong to that.
0: So I mean I'm trying to understand. So the the temple controversy that I was referring to was that of um, I think yeah. uh, Mansia, who was from a Muslim family. I got confused. Uh, so I'm just wondering, like the limits of inclusion or the limits of sort of subversion. Let's say it's possible to do certain things in Goa, perhaps because of the kind of audiences that would come to Goa. Uh, so are there limits to that? Like maybe something that's Uh, okay in goa would not be okay in a temple in in trishore i guess in kerala okay 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 so this is one part of the
1: question that i didn't address now i think the two performances that i was looking at were nartaki natraj's performance and uh kalakrishna's performance now these are two very specific things Uh, i'm sure you're aware that that nartaki natraj is uh is a kind of, is is very, very treasured in Tamil Nadu. Tamil Nadu is one of the most kind of liberal states when it comes to uh, inclusion towards transgender, to the transgender community. And uh, Nartaki has been a face of the state in that sense. She's been a face of the, of the form also. She's, of course, trained by among the most eminent of gurus, and she has always kind of performed female roles, but she's never actually uh, made a secret of the fact that she is... She's, she calls herself intersex. I mean, I don't know if that would... I mean, if transgender would apply, but uh, that has always been very much a part of her identity. So there is a way in which... Um, she is a part of the kind of legitimate uh, community of dancers of renowned dancers, perhaps in Nadu, people who would be invited to to the season to various forums to perform uh, she is also like I've said in my article somebody who is very kind of you know very invested in summer as uh, as a kind of uh, in tamar as a language and as a kind of literary culture and has uh, committed to to performing repertoire in tamar which again kind of means that i am i don't think that her that she is somebody who is um who is seen as, as problematic, at least in Tamil Nadu, at least in particular circles. She is somebody who is very valued by Tamil Nadu. Uh, where Kalakrishna is concerned, uh, Kalakrishna is, is in a certain way kind of performing at the intersection of like of the kind of cross-dressing male Kuchipuri dancers and and the Kalamanth or the Kalamantulus who were the kind of courtesan dancers. So, there is a way in which he performs both a kind of cross-dressed repertoire while taking on board uh, the repertoire of, of the hereditary dancers who don't any longer dance. So, or uh, who don't, I mean, there are a couple of hereditary dan- community dancers from hereditary communities who are now very very kind of visible, but um, he again is I don't think he is somebody who is uh, would be seen as problematic or difficult to accommodate my I think my question or problem in with the curation was that I think it was being given to us almost as a red herring that men were dancing female roles again. And uh, I think it is a red herring that does not allow us to ask more difficult questions.
0: Yeah, I'm actually surprised to hear that also because uh, traditionally, like you mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of men, and I'm thinking largely of Kathak, like Birju Maharaj and others who came to occupy that space and uh, pushed out, uh, you know, the traditional women. Who were already sort of established in the form i'm thinking of like abad region largely or jaipur you know the two different gharanas, and we we still like people are still struggling to find their footing uh and the same is true of thumri for instance mm. uh so i'm surprised that this is being seen as subversive per se like you know men cross-dressing uh and dancing
1: maybe this has an application to, to kind of upper-middle-class something. And, I mean, I think there is also a way in which I think all the classical forms get feminized. Um, it 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 happens in the interests of so-called realism. If you're performing a female role, why would you want a man to perform this role when a woman would be more... Be more authentic as female uh, this is the argument that is used in the kind of in, in the Gujarati theater it is used in the Marathi theater where you know cross-dressing male performers are over by the kind of middle of the 20th century are are actually um, no longer the huge hit or draw that they were earlier mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people like Deshankar Sundari, uh, these were people who actually kind of were fashion role models for women. I mean, women would actually kind of look at their dress, the way they, they wore their saris or you know, the way they uh, adorned themselves and imitate that. And at a certain point, you have a situation where uh, where this whole narrative of authenticity begins to come. In the theater, I know for a fact that, uh, that there are people who are basically saying that, uh, you know, why should men be doing this when women are available? It is also, uh, it is also I think, about uh, by the early part of the 20th century, women, at least elite women, becoming more and more uh, uh, comfortable in, in, the, in the public sphere and being interested in, like, you know, uh, on stage, being on stage,
0: on in performing, which was earlier not
1: available to
0: to respectable women. I didn't send you this question, but I'm thinking of uh, the role that sort of people like, say, Mahesh Datani, uh, played oh. in sort of talking about uh, art in a, in a play like Dance Like a Man, like um, you know uh but i'm wondering what such plays do to queerness what i'm trying to say is that let's say if you then say that okay in indian classical dance men are allowed to do certain things men are allowed to sort of perform these so called sort of roles sort of gestures which are so feminine uh does that do you think that can translate into you know People in the West, since you have already sort of had an experience you've been educated in New York University uh saying that okay, then it's there is a li- more of a liberal progressive tradition in India, like some a project like let's say Ruth Vanita or Salim Kidway did with uh, same sex love in India, trying to recover something. do you think that there's a chance that this can be a, like a recovery uh, or not a recovery but something which says that okay, there is queerness even in uh and when i say queerness i'm meaning more in terms of like uh, progressive uh queer sort of you know performances in indian classical dance so then there could be similar possibilities uh you know in other forms uh, you know something that maybe someone from like so-called western tradition uh cannot claim
1: okay i'm not sure how to answer that question anyway let me just i think that in the indian context in the south asian context uh, for instance if you look at the work of somebody like pram or anybody who is working on 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 Bidisha or londa nach uh, or nautanki um, will tell you is that there has been a lot of like i think from from uh, pram recent work i get a sense that that this is uh, still a kind of very um, London Nach and Bidessia, or the work that happens at the intersection of these forms, uh, is still a huge kind of um, huge kind of form of entertainment, a hugely profitable form of entertainment that is that is available to performers and to audiences in in Bihar, um, and that cross-dressed performance where where uh, a very a cross-dress performance where a very open and raucous queer erotics is available, uh, is performed, is, is available, um, and it is consumed. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that can't, I mean, I suppose the problem that I'm having with the question is addressing the question is that I think the, the situation in India now is so, India now and forever is so fragmented that it's difficult to come up with a kind of uh, broad answer, um, but which is not, but, but at the same time, one has to acknowledge or to uh, point out that the force of like nationalism as, as culture or nationalism as a kind of cultural form is is so is so is so kind of naturalized it's so deep it's so entrenched and it has certain kinds of forms and articulations and I'm not sure whether a queer erotics is necessarily uh, you know in line with that nationalist culture I think there might be what might be called a certain Tolerance, perhaps, uh, a certain sense of like if it happens, if it is not problematic, if it is not disturbing, it's fine. And I think across popular culture, there have been very kind of major uh, queer performance, whether or not they are actually overtly claiming queerness or articulating queerness. A queerness as politics. I remember reading Mahesh Tatani. I mean, I haven't read him in recent times, but when I did read him some you know, 15, 20 years ago, I, I used to find his work somewhat problematic. Uh, somewhat problematic, very, very limited in scope. Uh, it seemed to be a kind of very particular kind of uh, Bombay flat living, Bombay-Bangalore flat living elite community you have like private parties and stuff like that but obviously he was somebody who had a very kind of significant who left a very significant uh mark on like playwriting and what was possible in like in the kind of framework of uh drama uh in in india i am not going to say anymore because i don't remember details um, but I'm not sure if it is possible to say that a progressive that the that politics in the subcontinent accounts in progressive ways for queers.
0: I'm wondering, like, uh, like let's say people who are doing like queer performances, uh, modern queer performances now, uh, would they try and okay, okay. into... Like, relationship with okay the, so what yeah. i
1: think what i was trying to say is that i don't think like you know uh the politics of political parties or of the state is interested in like oh yeah yeah because in your yeah, article so
0: yeah you you mentioned this i think a member of the parliament who was referring to a performance yeah. Yeah. in i think toronto i think
1: yeah uh, this is Krishnan's work which you should look at because you know just to kind of uh, Step back for a minute. Hari Krishnan is an openly queer dancer and classical dancer. Again, he and Sri Trajan uh, trained and Nartaki, all trained by the same guru. Hari Krishnan, uh, you know, not only practices classical Indian dance, but also, I suppose, practices some form of uh, contemporary work, since I've not seen him doing this work. Now, I saw little clips of the trailer on YouTube. A uh, fairly erotic, fairly, um, fairly, very open kind of articulation of desire in his work. Um, and uh, and Sonal Man Singh, who is a very eminent partneratiem and Odyssey dancer and a member of the Rush, uh, of the upper house, essentially said that, uh, you know. This is not the kind of work that we accept as classical because the classical is sacred. So so I think one of the questions that I'm trying to raise at a certain level in the text is what would happen if a classically trained dancer began to be very openly articulating a queer politics in their dance, in classical dance.
0: So, I mean, there are limits then to those kind of, yeah. you know, subversion, I guess.
1: Yeah, I haven't seen, I mean, uh, you know, Puchipudi, the way it was done, say, uh, in by the male practitioners who traveled in largely male communities performing for male audiences. So... This is a kind of form that at that point is not, uh, is not recognized as classical. It gets recognized as classical only in the mid-1950s, mid to late 1950s. So I think I'm sure that when it was performed, it would have had a very particular community and erotics. When women take it up, I think it becomes different. When women, especially middle-class upper-caste women, take it up, and the form becomes quite different. What are they doing? Even with the very erotic repertoire, it becomes quite different. I was actually hearing from students who talk about how, uh, you know, they are performing very, very erotic padams without knowing quite what they are doing. Especially as young girls when they're learning the form. Uh, There is a disconnect between uh, what is being performed and who they are. And after a while, uh, you know, and you know, your repertoire is actually quite limited. Uh, You perform very specific pieces, you try to stay away from the erotic pieces. Um, Okay, so I just wanted to say something about Hare Krishnan. Hare Krishnan has this book, and he has also written an article. Uh, in a book on like on male dancers, it's an edited volume on male dancers. Where he has a very interesting article where he talks about where he talks about it's not a kind of he says that men dancing women's roles was not something strange within the repertoire of culture. It becomes that uh, it becomes problematic. Uh, as we enter into kind of the nationalist phase and into the phase of independence, when I think there is, there is this pressure on male dancers to be masculine. And uh, they're always trying to, in a certain sense, police uh, what comes to be spoken of as as effeminacy, if that is a word, of being effeminate. So, uh, so Hare Krishnan talks about, I think, uh, dancers, male classical dancers who are very, very buff in order to kind of uh, contend with that. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know enough of the scene to actually speak about this, but I think Hare Krishnan is very interesting in
0: how he deals with it. And I'm wondering, since the Section Three Seventy Seven judgment came out in two thousand eighteen, like, have you noticed any sort of changes in the largely not necessarily classical, but largely queer performance scene, uh, like in Delhi, in Chennai, or anywhere you have been? This period, twenty eighteen to twenty twenty two,
1: is also a period where, for certain personal reasons, and also because of like COVID, uh 2020 to 2022, uh, I haven't seen that much performance. So, um, uh, personal reasons like personal family reasons, I've just not uh, had the bandwidth to see a lot of work. Uh, You know, I have seen some work, for instance, the work of Mandeep Reiki uh, dance like a man and dance, no, no, what is it called?
0: Queen size.
1: Queen size, and there's the work that he did before that. Um, something about an ant, something and something. Uh, so I've seen his work. Then I know that um, the Miller Bhavan was having these performance uh, had had these projects, who, which were called gender bender. Uh, projects which were both kind of, uh, uh, you know, so these were kind of open calls for like these gender bender performances. So, while I've read about them, I haven't actually seen it. So, um, and then, of course, I suppose the work of uh, Nafteja's work, which also I have not at this point seen for a while. Um, so, uh, i think you know people like nabhage and justin were performing and have been performing before 2018 uh, and after that but uh, whether it energized the scene i'm sure it did energize the scene but i do not have details also thinking about, about. Uh,
0: the uh, artists unite uh, movement not movement but artists unite events uh, artists unite against it yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That took place in, yeah. in 2019 in Delhi. I, I saw a couple of performances in the Red Fort, and uh, some yeah. of them were amazing. Mm.
1: Yeah. No, I think there was a lot of there was. I mean, obviously, for very there's a lot of energy, and there was this way in which the anti-CA movement, the Red Fort, all of this was beginning to come together. Uh, also, like you know, um, the the kind of Mobilization by women around the kind of uh, around questions of rape and sexual harassment. So there were all these uh, these movements, these energies coming together, uh, and and they were obviously, I think, complementing,
0: working with each other, uh, intimately connected with each other. I mean, I'll, because I'm also looking at the time, um, so do, do you think performance in your, like, teaching or, uh, you know, the way we perceive performance, uh, is there a relationship that performance has with theory? Or, uh, I'm thinking of, like, Jose Esteban and others, like, um, you know, who have uh, done so much with performance. And... You know trying and articulate performance in ways which is uh, which is theoretical but at the same time which relies a lot on not theory as in high theory but th- trying to produce high theory in a, maybe a different way like you know relying on ephemera relying on gestures
1: i would say yes absolutely uh, a certain kind of trajectory of theorizing and thinking especially work that is happening in the early 90s into the mid-2000s uh, is like a great moment, I think, for like the way in which queer performance is, uh, becomes a space from which uh, theoretical formulations, very, very significant theoretical formulations are, are emerging. So if you're looking at the work of Judith Butler or Jose or uh, or a host of like uh, American and European scholars, very significant work that is coming out uh, of that moment um, so I would say yes you know i'm I'm just thinking about my own practice as a scholar and I am finding that I mean as the scholar who who lives and works in in India um, I find that this work is useful and insightful to a certain extent but I don't think I would be able to understand or unpack the questions that i'm interested in unpacking especially questions that are deeply connected to to social life in the subcontinent just through these theoretical frameworks for me increasingly the methods that i am that i'm working with is a method that is looking at at the way in which in the Indian context, textualities and embodiments are very, very very intimate. Textualities across language and embodiments across across gender are are intimate. And these are also deeply connected to to the ways in which uh, deeply connected connected to questions of sovereignty and territoriality. Territory so I think I have a, a somewhat different uh, different framework, perhaps. Uh, some of the questions that I would like to understand, I feel that I need to to kind of look very closely at certain materials that might not be the materials that are being looked at in the work of like, in Jose's work, or, or Butler's work, or
0: Peggy Fellows' work. I think they're looking at
1: different contexts. I'm looking at a different context.
0: Mm. And this is my last question. Um, I was wondering, like, you are a Dean now, right, in a Abedka University, uh, has your... Officiating Dean. Officiating. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what that means. You have to explain that to me. But i my, a...
1: my personal assistant says it means nothing. He says you are deep. Stop putting this O there.
0: Oh, okay. So I'm curious to know how has your relationship with the administration changed? Like from being uh, an associate professor, you know, who would have to suffer, who have to sort of, you know, has it been the same, or or has it changed more on the student fronts? Do students hate you now? I don't know if they I'm joking, of
1: course, yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm I'm trying to take this very seriously because um, you know everybody. I, you know, it's a it's a job which supposedly has power, but I feel my feel that I'm uh, that I'm in in like a mode where I'm constantly. Asking people for help, the administration for help. So um, I don't see myself as necessarily wielding power. But uh, what I will say is that, you know, for instance, students will write to me and say, do this or do that, or we need this or we need that. So what I tend to do then is to write letters to the concerned authority and say this, these, this is the requirement and can you please help. And this is the same whether it is a student who is asking or whether it is uh, a faculty community or a, or a school or a program that is asking. So I'm trying to kind of play this deanship uh, as a very kind of, as a thing that I take step by step. Uh, I think the best advice was given to me by Abhadev Khabib, who lives above me, who is a kind of Buddha activist. And I told her that, you know, I've become dean and I'm terribly worried about it. And she said something that I am very kind of, that I'm very grateful for. She said, given the current scenario, uh, this is not a position that will give you enormous power. In fact, it will give you It is it is a position that will put you in like situations that are difficult. And she says the only thing that you can do is to be kind to people who ask you for help.
0: That's also a very queer understanding, I think, of care. I don't know. Like... Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I I keep that in mind. Uh, that she says, like, you know, somebody needs help, somebody needs leave, somebody needs a break. Try and work that out for them, and uh, I don't think there could be better advice.
0: Does queerness in general help, like in your in your administrative work or in your like general work as a teacher?
1: I'm not sure uh, what exactly you mean by that, but uh, I think that. I don't know. I mean, I've been actually talking to colleagues about this, that every year in my school, we have students who have very, very particularized identities. And uh, it's interesting to see in the ways in which they are differentiating themselves as individuals. And in these differentiations, they are actually uh, asking us to, to engage in particular ways. And I have, I think, become, if not very sensitive, somewhat sensitive to these things. And uh, I think, I mean, for instance, there is this student whose work I find very interesting who works on s and for instance, and she's a kind of, I suppose, she practices kink as a sexual being. And it was very interesting to me that there is a way in which when you think about, s and fundamental to that queer practice is the question of consent and it is a question of consent that is uh, that is uh, that is raised in ways that a kind of heterosexual politics will just not get in ways and in such a pertinent and absolutely fundamental way uh, so So the question of consent and queerness was something that, uh, that I keep in mind. Uh, The other, you know, so there's that, there's a question of like, uh, again, the question, you know, of gender and of, uh, of kind of normalized genders and how that has been completely blown apart in, and how one then thinks not only about oneself, but about how one engages. The other, I think, uh, question that I'm—I mean—more and more uh, alert to is to think about about sex work and the politics of transaction. So um, I think these are important learnings, and um, hoping that I can practice care, keeping these in mind
0: yeah I mean that's good to know especially I was thinking about Sarah Emmett's work Mm -hmm. um, whether it's on consent or on queer relationality uh, Mm -hmm. and then the role of the admin admin, what yeah uh, what that person is supposed to do or how do you negotiate with the administration so yeah that was really helpful you know to understand wow you can be in a position which is not necessarily a position of power but still kind of you know have some roles to do for people through either through by practicing care uh, or by being just uh, kind um, very often
1: i'm very, i find myself um, kindness difficult because i'm like just so frustrated but
0: i try i think you're a very kind person <laughs> yeah and and generous and generous person yeah
1: thank you Rajashi.